We open our Bibles together tonight to the Word of God in Zephaniah, chapter 3. So Zephaniah is the fourth to the last book in the Old Testament, going back from Malachi, um, Zechariah, Haggai, and then Zephaniah, chapter 3. And our text this evening is the verses 16 and 17 of Zephaniah 3. This was the passage that I preached for the last uh, service in Georgetown, August 28th in the evening. Uh, my last service as their pastor. I wanted to direct our attention as a congregation, Georgetown and myself, to see the church as God sees the church. So we're in Hage, uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, and before I read, just a few words about Zephaniah. So the first verse of the first chapter of Zephaniah uh, tells us that he's prophesying during the days of Josiah, and Josiah, the children will remember, was the last good king of Judah. So we're about 25 years before Judah will be carried away captive. And the prophecy makes very plain, as does Jeremiah, that Judah at this time is filled with wickedness, the worship of gods, different gods and idols, and much apostasy. And when we read chapter 3, the first seven verses are going to give to us a summary of the sins that he has pointed out. Uh, in this prophecy, we should pay attention to the concept, the day of the Lord. And Zephaniah certainly emphasizes the day of the Lord in his prophecy. And he's referring to that when we read the third chapter, even though he doesn't specifically say day of the Lord, whenever, you, whenever we read the word then, for then, or we read the word in that day, or at that time, he's referring to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord simply is the day of Jesus. For Judah, he's talking about the day of their return from the captivity. But the day of the Lord is that day of God's grace in Jesus Christ when he came, right now, and when he comes again. So let's read the chapter. I said the first seven verses are going to be a description of the sins of the church. Verse 8 is going to be the declaration of God's judgment upon the nations. And then verses 9 through 20 are going to be God's great and precious promises to the church. Zephaniah chapter 3. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice, she received not correction, she trusted not in the Lord, she drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves, they gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary, they have done violence to the law. The just Lord is in the midst thereof, 
He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations, their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste, that none pass by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely, thou wilt fear me, thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off, howsoever I punished them. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people of a, a, a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent or one shoulder, the idea of shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more <clears throat> be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day... It shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will give them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, Seth. The Lord. Our text once again is verses 16 and 17. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy, he will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. <clears throat>
Beloved congregation of the Lord, these are some of the most precious words that you're ever going to hear on this side of the grave. When we stand before the Lord face to face, what wondrous words will be communicated to us. But until then, you will never hear anything more lovely, anything more amazing to a sinner and to his church than these words. He tells us that Jehovah, our God, God tells us that he sings a song of joy over us over his church tonight in every age and tonight in every place, wherever the word of God is brought in its truth, but over us right here tonight, his church. When he thinks of you, he sings. And he sings in joy. I saw this verse, verses 16 and 17, Some 15 years ago, when I officiated at a wedding in Lamont Christian Reformed Church, and in their foyer was an old display case with a glass top with a Bible open to this verse, and obviously it had been there for many years. And I read it, and it struck me, and it stayed with me. It's one of the most beautiful things that we can think about when we come into the church. It's an appropriate place to have it in the foyer, in the narthex. That when we come into church, we are to be reminded that, yes, we're here to sing praises to God, but that God sings over us in Jesus Christ. And so I thought it would be a very fit word also to bring to us tonight here that we should see again how God looks on us. Not how we so often look on the church, but that we might see the church of Jesus Christ wherever she is in truth, but right here as well that we may see the church through the lens of the heart of God. That that's how we may see it, that we may see the church here as God sees the church here. This verse is very striking. And perhaps I'd like to ask you, did you know of this verse? Have you thought about this verse Have you ever thought what it must be that God rejoices over us with singing? It's unique in all of Scripture. In the 66 books of the Bible, there's only one verse, verse 17 of our text, that says that God sings. And we're only told that God sings over one object, His church. There are other passages which tell us that God rejoices over his people. Psalm 149 tells us that God takes pleasure in his people. The Bible tells us that God has all types of names of love for his people. We read of them this evening. Hepzibah, my delight is her. Beulah, my, my married one. Jeshurun, 
He calls us the beloved in Jesus Christ. He says to us, you are my joy and you are my treasure. But there's only one verse in which he says, I will rejoice over thee with singing. I sing when I think of you. It's a beautiful verse. It's an amazing verse. We sang the hymn, Amazing Grace. We say the Lord sings over us. What would happen if our hearts, like a sock, were right now pulled inside out and everything inside my thoughts and hearts were known and yours were known to me? We could hardly be with each other. And yet, God in grace in Christ, having forgiven washed away and having put Christ in our hearts and in the church and given the church to Christ, sees her in his son, sees her here as beautiful. And this verse is very climatic, and I would have you point, look at verse 17 there, and I would have you see that we're going up an ascending ladder, something like you're taught in Heidelberg Catechism of the state of exaltation Resurrection and ascension and seated at the right hand of God and coming in glory. So we read this verse. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. What could be more than that? He will rejoice over you with joy. What could be greater than that? He will rest. He is satisfied in his love for you. And then higher yet, he will sing over you with singing. We all know Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. We all know 1 John, or John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But what about Zephaniah 3? 16 and 17. We should all know that. I call your attention to the text under the theme, He will joy over you with singing. He will joy over you with singing. So the three points that I'm going to be following are that this is an amazing song, a joyful song. Number two, it is a salvation song. And that number three, it is a Wedding song. So it's an amazing song, salvation song, and a love song. Just listen now to the words. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. The Holy Spirit, for us, is focusing on the joy that exists eternally and now in God's heart for us. A joy that just like you and me erupts in singing. This song that Jehovah is singing over us, his church, and over the church of all ages, is not a lament It is not a requiem. It is not a funeral song. It is not the sad song that we read, that we sing in Psalm 137 that Zion sings 
under the chastisement of her sins as captives in Babylon. This is not a war song in which we are called to battle. In that sense, it's not a Reformation song, our mighty fortress, but it's a joyful song. It's a song of pleasure. It's a song of love. It's the song of the love in God's heart and the singing of that love for his church. You, when you have joy and one who you love, you sing from your heart and soul. So does God. Jeremiah chapter 48, uh, chapter 42 Verse 41, in a similar context in which he is giving the promises to a people that he would redeem, he says in verse 41, Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land. Note the words, assuredly, with my whole heart and with my whole soul. That is anthropomorphism. God is talking about his heart. And his soul, with your heart, is what you desire. With your soul, that's all of your being. This is what God desires in all of his being. That when he sees the church and what he has done in his grace for her, he sings. And so this tells us the source of God's joy and singing. We sing to him, not unto us. Not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. The source of his song is to be found, and his joy is to be found in himself and what he has done as God for his church. Do we tonight perhaps say, well, of course, God sings over us. Do you say, well, compared to other people, I could see that God, if he's going to sing, would sing over me and what I have done or over this church. Certainly we could see why anyone would sing over us. Is that what we sing? say? And I point out to you verse 11. In the last part of verse 11, when God says he will be doing in that day great things for us and washing away our transgressions, he says, For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. He's referring to what Jeremiah referred to in Jeremiah 7 verse 4, that the people of Judah at that time was saying, The people... The people of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, are we a religious pride in themselves? No, that's not the source. It's not in us. But he shows where this joy in his heart comes from. You may say that you may read. He's singing. I don't know the tune, but I know the lyrics of this song. For they are recorded to us in the book of Ephesians, and especially Ephesians chapter 1, which says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, and goes on to speak of the, an eternal predestinating love for us 
and a a determination to redeem and sanctify us in the blood of Christ in order that we might be to the praise of the glory of His grace. He's singing the lyrics of the song around His own grace, His own eternal free choosing. This amazing, wonderful, free choosing according to His own purpose in Christ. His redemption in Christ. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. You may put it this way. All of God's love, all of God's grace and saving mercy converge on the church, are seen in the church. And because of his own eternal mercy and grace, to give it to us in Christ Jesus when he sees it. He sings. But we say to this, there, is there some mistake here? That how can that be? He sings from his heart over us. Perhaps the idea then is that we should interpret this as a reference to the one holy Catholic church tonight that is surrounding the throne of God and that is perfected perfectly before Him and without sin. And that's certainly true. But no, no, we may not limit to the church militant, to this church right now. We, for verse 12, tells us, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. He's talking about the militant, struggling church on earth. Well, we might say then, well, perhaps the mistake is this. That he's talking about the church like in the days of the Reformation. And he's talking about the martyrs of the church. And he's talking about the church tonight in India and in Myanmar. And in North Korea, where brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ give up their life and endure unbearable persecution, but confess the name of Christ before men. And we say again, that is is no doubt true. Those who seal their love and faith for him in their own death. No, he's talking about the militant church. He sings. And we hear him sing. And we hear him sing, and this is why, children, ears up. This is why we want in our church the faithful preaching of the Word of God and of his sovereign grace and gospel for when you hear the preaching of sovereign grace and you come to church alive by the Holy Spirit and you hear the counsel of God you are hearing God singing over his church and that's why it's so important that you hear the gospel of the glory of God according to the Holy Scriptures 
Psalm 89, verse 15, Blessed is the people who hear the joyful sound, the joyful sound of the gospel, God's own joy in his people. They shall walk in the light of thy countenance. Now if we progress just a little further and peer down into verses 18 and 19, we ask the question now, who is? We've been asking the question, who is it that God is singing over? And we've seen that it's the militant church. But at the same time, the focus intensifies in verses 18 and 19, and the church is described in two ways. And it's described, first of all, in this way, that God has in them a love for worship and for the honor of his name. We read in verse 18, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it, of the church, was a burden. They are sorrowful. And why are they sorrowful? For the solemn assembly. And why are they sorrowful for the solemn assembly? Because in their sin and in their captivity, they could not hold these solemn assemblies, these feast days, and the Lord's Day. Jerusalem was destroyed. In short, they could not worship. And because they could not worship, they were grieved over it. Those who are of thee who are grieved over this. And the reproach of the church was a burden. Reproach had fallen upon the church, and it was a burden to them, so that when the church went through trials and troubles, they were burdened by this. And so God is singing over those who, by his grace, love the worship of the church and love the honor of God's church. He's not singing over those for whom the church is a drag and drag themselves to church. He's not singing over those who are not troubled in their heart when the church is troubled, but those who by his grace love the church and love her worship. And then in verse 19, we go a little further, and they feel these people, they feel unworthy. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that is driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Halting and being lame is again Scripture's way of expressing approach to God, and the approach of one who by God's grace does not feel he can approach God, and their sins have made them lame, and in their life, for the gospel of Christ, they have been driven out, and so he's singing over those who feel unworthy in themselves, and who have endured rejection by the world. So we may say he sings over the church as he sees her in his grace and as his grace is seen in her. I'll repeat it. 
He sings over the church that he sees in his grace. And his grace is seen in that church. And it's seen in love for the church. And it's seen in consciousness of sin. He sings over you. And now the argument of the text. That's why we have verse 16 with the text. Because verse 17 is the reason, it's the ground for what is stated in verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. So verse 17 is the reason why we should not fear, and our hands should not be slack. That's the argument of the text. The Lord sings over his church. Therefore, do not be overcome with fear. Do not become so discouraged that your hands hang by your sides. Don't fear anything. Don't fear the future. Don't fear the enemy, the devil. Don't fear whatever trials or struggles or heartaches that the Lord sends to us in this life. Fear zaps our strength. It makes us, it takes away our ability for work in the kingdom of God, but rather be confident, confident in the Lord who delights in his church. We probably are all acquainted with the Nehemiah passage, Nehemiah 8, verse 10, when Nehemiah says to Judah, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here, that means the fact that God joys in you is your strength. Thou art his joy and treasure. That applies to us as elders and as deacons. Do not fear. That applies to us as parents bringing up our children in this world. That applies to us in our Christian school. That applies to us as youth. Walking a Christian life, being identified as a Christian. It applies to all of us, little children. Fear thou not. Let not thine hands be slack. Jehovah sings a joyful song over you. Now this song is a salvation song. And we're going to sing at the conclusion of our service, number 417, Salvation's joyful song is heard, where'er the righteous dwell. For them God's hand is strong to save and doeth all things well. But we read, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, he will save. So he's singing about salvation, that he's saved us. And now Zephaniah is going to describe salvation in a bit different way than we would normally think. When we come to the word salvation in Scripture, then we always point out that salvation is simply deliverance from the greatest, not simply, wonderfully, deliverance from the greatest evil unto the highest good. And the greatest evil is my sin. 
our sin, and the highest good is God. And so when it says, He will save you, and He joys in you, certainly that's the idea of salvation as well. But when we look again at verses 19 and 20, we see that that salvation that He's given to us nevertheless includes other things along with it. And the first thing that we see is that that salvation of the church also includes with it His judgment upon the enemies of the church. That's verse 19. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Or in other words, when God saves the church, he also deals with the world. He's going to deal with the devil. He's going to deal with the world that has persecuted his church. That's going to be settled. Not only is salvation then God's dealing with the church's enemy, but the salvation is also, verse 20, God gathering the church to himself. At that time, I will bring you again, even in the time that I will gather you, for I will make you a name and praise among all the people of the earth. In verse, the early verses here, verse 10, from beyond the river of Ethiopia, my suppliants, the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. God's salvation of the church is when he gathers the church and is gathering the church through his word, through missions, through the preaching of the world from all the corners of the earth. When God saves his church, the word goes forth and he gathers the church out of every land and nation. And then thirdly, so he saves the salvation always includes a judgment on the world and the devil who have persecuted the church. Salvation always includes the gathering of all the church from the whole world to himself. And then finally, we may put it this way, salvation includes public vindication of the church in that day. For it says, he will give a name and a praise to the church among all the people of the earth. In other words, he will vindicate publicly his church. If you're acquainted with Article 37 of the Belgic Confession, the last judgment in the return of Jesus Christ points out that on that day it will be made known, especially to those who have persecuted God's church, to the world and to the devil, that this was his church. He will vindicate their name. How is he going to do all of that? How does he save the church? The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. How does he save? He says, I save by being in the midst of you. In the midst of you in the wonder of the covenant. Well, right now, simply, I save my church 
throughout the ages, around the world, right here, by being in the midst of you. I stand, says God in this verse, right in the middle of you. And I save, and I gather, and I preserve. But when we hear these words, in the midst of you, the Almighty in the midst of you, then immediately our minds go to Jesus, the very God of God, in the midst of us, given to us in our flesh, present with us as we needed him and need him. We hear the words, I am with you even unto the end of the world. I'm in the midst of you. I've come among you. I took upon myself your sins. I became one with you in the flesh. I came to bear away what you could not bear away. I came to give you what you could never have obtained. I am in the midst of you. And I am in the midst of you as the evidence of the eternal grace and love of the Father. And so we read, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. In this church, he is mighty. The Lord thy God, that is, Jesus Christ in the flesh, God has entrusted all things to his hand. The life of this church and our own personal lives. He is in the midst of us, and he is mighty. His was a mighty cross, for it took away all our guilt. His was a mighty resurrection, for we are born again in him. His was a mighty ascension. He brought us to the Father. And right now, tonight, his is a mighty rule. He will save you. He will save this church and all of his church in the hour of their need. This is God's message. And again, the argument of the text The argument of the text is God by grace joys over his church. God by grace saves his church. He's in the midst of his church. You must not be afraid. You must not despair. You must not become despondent. You must not feel that you are defeated. You must not say that the way of the Lord is too much. We must not be scared. But we must be confident in our God. And we must not be afraid to do God's work. To build up the church, one with each other. To grow together. To become strong in faith together. We must not be afraid of our Christian confession before the world, as we're in the world. Don't be afraid. To hide back your Christian confession. Don't be afraid to preach the gospel that has been given to this church in Mexico, in this community, 
to spread the word. Don't be afraid to do that, to witness. Don't be afraid to be busy and committed to your Christian school. Don't be afraid of living as a young person a life of godliness. Don't be afraid in your home to show that this is a home of the love of God where Christ is. Don't let your hands fall by your sides. Slack hands don't do anything. Let not your hands be slack. Jehovah sings in joy a song of salvation. He sings a love song. He sings a wedding song. We have here the, the covenant formula. So the idea of a wedding, of a marriage, is introduced there in the text. The Lord thy God. That's always covenant language. I will be thy God. So the idea of marriage is being introduced a wedding song. And the singing that is being referred to is literally that in those days in Judah and in Israel, the bridegroom would be the one who would sing a song to his bride. We have now the speaking of vows and so on, but what would happen there is that when they would be united The bridegroom, and young men, you could listen up to this. When they were married, the bridegroom would sing a song of his love and commitment to his bride. And God is likening himself to that in this passage. That's why I read when we started our service from Isaiah chapter 62, where... He says, we will no longer be termed forsaken or desolate. And that's a reference in Isaiah, back to the 54th chapter, where he likened his people unto a woman that has been rejected of her husband. And he says, that woman is not to be called desolate if she puts her trust in me. And so he says, thou shalt not be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, My delight is in her, and thy land Beulah, married one, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. And then verse 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. He says, On the day of your betrothal, I sang a song of love over you. I wasn't embarrassed to do it. Now perhaps as a young person, as a young girl, you say, no one delights in me, I don't have anyone. Or we say, the hurts that have been inflicted on me, they're insolvable. The sins that I've committed, they're just too awful. My problems are too big and too great. And God says, I sing 
a song of betrothal over you in Jesus Christ, your mind. And I'm not ashamed to sing it. Note the words, he joys over you with singing. That is, he's not in the basement, he's not in the other room, it's not being piped in, he's not texting this. He's saying this personally, again, to your heart, in the preaching of the word. He says to you, without blush, I rejoice over you. I love you. You are my Hephzibah. I will rejoice over thee with joy. He is not as a man on his wedding day who thinks of somebody else that didn't want him. So the gospel is not, well, God wanted everybody, but he couldn't take them, and unless they first received him, he couldn't have them, so he's, he's disappointed at his wedding. He only has the few who took him. Well, has everybody else spurned him? No. God rejoices over his church by sovereign grace. He loves his church. None of them will be missing. And he joys over them with a joy greater, if I may put it that way. He certainly rejoiced when Jesus said, it is finished. He certainly rejoiced when his son rose from the dead. But oh, how he will rejoice when the church stands before him and he sings to us. He will rest in his love. That means he will be quiet. And that refers to the fact between a husband and wife who have the love of God that they can experience sometimes that they don't need to talk. They can be quiet. They can rest. They understand. He will joy over us with singing. This is something God does right now, tonight, in this place, to the preaching of the gospel but he looks forward to doing this perfectly with the entire church as they enter as we enter into glory therefore don't be afraid don't be discouraged don't fear the future may god give to us in this church to hear the faithful preaching of the gospel to hear the sweet sound of unfathomable things of the love of God in Christ. May he drive away fear. May he give our hearts rest. May he make our hands strong in his work, that we abound in his work. And may we tonight delight in God who so marvelously delights in us. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. 
We thank thee for the wonder of thy eternal grace. We pray that thy word, O Lord, though it is spoken in weakness, might be used in power, and that it may enter into our hearts by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that we may stand in awe of thy eternal love and grace, and that our hearts may be confident, rested, and ready to be used of thee. In Jesus' name, amen.